Welcome to the podcast, Work in Design. I think design is about asking a lot of questions. It's, it's finding the balance between the, the pragmatic and the emotional, I think. From the age of 15, I've always had to work to be able to follow this path. I did two years of A-levels, then a year of Art and Design Foundation, and then three years of university. That sounds in my own head now like that's a big commitment, but it didn't feel in any way like that at the time. In this series, we'll discover how you can work as a designer. I'm Kieran Bakewell, and I feel lucky to call design my job. I think it's rewarding work where you can really make a difference. I hope that I can help a new and diverse generation find their way into this fantastic career. I'll be interviewing practicing designers to find out exactly what they do, importantly how they got there, and also discuss some of the amazing opportunities being a designer presents. So if you're a young creative person and you're wondering what jobs could suit you after school, or perhaps you'd already like to pursue a career in design, then this podcast could be for you. If you'd like to find out any more about any of the episodes or interview guests, please visit workindesign.co.uk. Today, I'm joined by Stefan Bench. Stefan is a senior industrial designer at one of the most iconic architectural practices in the world. Foster and Partners have changed the urban landscape globally with buildings ranging from stadiums to airports, museums and skyscrapers. There are too many iconic buildings to name, but perhaps people will recognise buildings such as the Gherkin in London, various Apple stores worldwide, and the LaSalle Stadium that hosted the final of the recent Football World Cup. As well as architecture, Foster and Partners design products for their own buildings and also for manufacturing clients. This is where Stefan comes in. Stefan has worked as a designer for over 20 years, beginning with his own furniture business and then working as a designer for a number of other businesses before making his way to Foster's. I consider Stefan to be a true designer who's followed his passion to organisations where he can focus solely on design. I'm excited to find out how Stefan has navigated his career and, of course, how he got started. Stefan, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm going to jump straight in with a question I've been asking everyone to start with just to get us going. I think the word design is often misused or can be misused and to describe maybe something with a a higher degree of thought that's gone into it or maybe to describe a luxury item. So perhaps it could seem like a, a snobby or superficial word. Of course, it's not. How would you describe the meaning of the word design? I think whenever I get asked this question and, and sometimes when friends or family ask the question, well, okay, you've told me where you work and what you do, but what do you actually do? What does that mean? And I think the, the thing that always springs to mind is I think at the very core of what I do, it, it's problem solving, essentially. There are obviously some aspects of design where the brief can be a little shallow perhaps but then I think designers that I respect I think we always look for the reason for doing something and the reason for doing something is usually or in the best work is to do something differently and make an improvement and if you're looking to make an improvement that suggests there's something a problem with how it's been done previously so therefore you're coming back to this statement of problem solving 
Yeah, and I guess the problem for one company might be, you know, you take the same problem to a different company and they've got a different set of constraints they need to work in. They have certain things they can do in their factory. Their customers buy from them at a different price point. So it's, although maybe like you say, sometimes it can see a shallow brief. We maybe want a chair that does a bit like that, but it does this for us. It's a unique problem to that business. Yes, exactly. I think design is about asking a lot of questions and the whys and i i always remember i i think the first design that i did was when in chemistry class at school you never really just dived in and started putting stuff on a bunsen burner and the teacher was always very clear about there has to be a, a need first of all a need to carry out the experiment the brief the experiment itself, the outcomes, and the outcomes then lead to another need normally, and then another brief and another. And I think that essentially is designing the part before the experiment. You have to design the experiment, and that's no different to when we work with people like Artemidy in lighting, for instance. And the brief is very simple in one aspect. For instance, we need a lamp for the portable lighting market. Uh, We've got this battery, etc., etc., but they'd also been having a number of requests from people for a very clear end-of-life process for all of the products. That was a big part of the brief as well. Aesthetic rarely comes into any briefs that we work on or, or I've worked on through my career, I think, because I think... That passes here. Yeah, it's almost a given, isn't it, that... That it's got to have a human appeal, maybe. Yeah, so it, there's a lot of it is about it's finding the balance between the the pragmatic and the emotional i think is something i've come to realize much later in my career that the things the products i really really admire they tick a lot of these invisible boxes and the advertising and the packaging doesn't necessarily tell you about the processes and the amount of people and the problem solving that's gone into something that may appear very simple I think our iPhone is a great example of it's just a slab of black, but there's hundreds and hundreds of people and, and, and issues they're trying to solve. And, and I think it's from the, the sports world. We talk about small gains and it's not necessarily one thing makes a big impact. It's, it's can you improve 50 tiny details and then they'll have a big impact accumulated yeah and i'm i'm really glad you touched on the point of your science experiment at school your first design <laughs> because design sometimes and i think this is this is more overlooked than anything else can be a process or a system it doesn't yeah. have to be an object so i'm really glad to, we talked about that actually we talk a lot especially at fosters i don't think we would ever consider ourselves or or talk about ourselves as experienced designers but especially when we're designing elements specifically for a building and we talk again looking for the problems and where you can make improvements a lot of what you do in the physical world is about experience and you're designing a person's experience through physical objects space lighting etc so yeah i think design like i said i think it's that pragmatic but you also you look into design an emotional response as well yeah Fantastic. Well, thank you for that. And I think certainly some of what I'm hearing there is problem solving with a with a human edge to it, with a human response. So just moving on a bit now, Stefan, to what you do now, could you describe what you do on a day-to-day basis? What does your job look like? 
50% of my work, as I said, is a brief from a manufacturer, for instance, but we also get briefs from non-manufacturing companies. There's a term I'm not a huge fan on, but design thinking. I think there's been more there's been more interest in recent years from companies that might not necessarily have a tangible object that they want designed, but they might have issues within their company where they want to apply, as I just said, design thinking. So we, we do often get requests for non-tangible things, like I said, and then the other 50% of my day is architectural projects and clients on architectural projects, where we have opportunities to look at things like uh, reception desks. It can be anything to uh, door jam details, for instance, on a, on a building recently, we had miles and miles of ribbed wall paneling throughout the whole project. And then the doors were all concealed within that ribbed paneling. And then at the 11th hour, somebody starts to apply door handles, uh, push plates, fire alarms, building signage, etc., etc. Everything's bigger than the ridges in the doors, and it's different to the spacing in the ridges in the doors uh, and the walls, etc. So then they'll come to us for, again, just some design thinking, and they have a very distinct problem, which we, we look for solutions, talk with the different manufacturers, etc. Um, and then that goes anything up to very large-scale uh, reception desks, for instance, coffee bars, micro-architectural elements, I suppose you could say, all the way down to things that are relatively invisible, like we will get involved with if we've got suspended ceiling panels, for instance, what is the best way that we can suspend those panels with ease of installation, ease of access, post-project, etc.? So yeah, a lot of clients that I feel very lucky to be involved with because they have a shared vision and a shared desire to do things better using anything from the most traditional manufacturing techniques and skills um, where appropriate, all the way through to pushing the most modern manufacturing techniques. And in most instances, we're combining those two things as well. So very material driven very process driven lots of research as well we're lucky to have a material research center we work with them a lot they present to us things they found out there in the world and i think a lot of that to do is to do with keeping your mind interested in all of these things and i think for every for, for everything that solves a problem for instance back to smartphones or iPhones, etc. There's like a plethora of needs that come with those things that so there's there's always the requirement for new ways of doing things, better ways of doing things, etc. And I think it's perhaps easy to underestimate the the prestige of where you work actually. I know when I've been to visit you, or certainly when I've been to visit Foster and Partners, I kind of stood in the doorway for a while just looking around thinking, <laughs> wow, look at all these creative people milling about and look at all those architectural models. Um, so in terms of where you actually work, do you, you work as part of a, a team? Yeah, so we've got a 15-person industrial design team. I wonder whether sometimes industrial design is is a phrase that needs explaining to people who might be new to different areas of design. What does that cover? So it's a slightly... Um 
incorrect term for what we do because I think I think traditionally an industrial designer is designing physical objects for industrial production. So when something is mass produced, uh, the process is industrialized essentially. So machine production. The industrial industry part of industrial design is about how it's made, not yes. necessarily what it's being made for. So you're not designing industrial components. Yeah. It's yeah. A lot of what we do is, I mean, okay, let's talk about prototypes. We'll make prototypes of an object and we then share those with the manufacturer and we're making prototypes for us to understand all of the details, how it could possibly be made. The manufacturer then makes prototypes that go through an iterative process, but they're mostly sort of fabricated, which is they're produced by hand and put together to closely replicate what would be produced. And then when everything's signed off, this is a slight simplification of the process. Essentially, the manufacturer then industrializes that process. And that includes making molds and, and molding tools for all of the components. And, and essentially, you get to the most efficient way of making the object in large numbers i suppose you could say in in the fashion world you have couture where somebody's making one of something and, and in our world that's a bespoke there's another layer down from that where you have uh, more tailored clothing where it's still it's a lot of hand processing but they're making multiples of something and then i suppose you've you're then into the world of the high street where items are produced in hundreds of thousands and they've got computer controlled pattern cutting the hand work is very minimal same as in the automotive industry it's in some ways it's a little it's a little sad because it is about taking out human error or the potential for human error so you use industrial mechanical processes for consistency throughout that process so i suppose when you say what's an industrial designer it is designing for that mass produced market but we do also one-offs we do batch production pieces so and if you're designing for fosters architectural yeah. projects that they'll often be one-offs or yeah. or very small low volume so but just touching on foster and partners and why we are quite unique in the terms that we have this team is that if you look at any of Norman Foster's work, he approaches architecture as a system, which in simplistic terms, a house made of bricks, the brick is the system. It's, it's a multiplied single element that you use to create walls, etc. And Norman Foster, from his very early projects, was always about what is the most efficient system for creating buildings, getting light into the building, so you're using less electricity, getting fresh air into a building, etc. So even though Norman and, and all of the teams at Foster's are designing, for instance, a 40-floor skyscraper, they are designing at the very small scale of connections and concealed elements within the building and then that gets multiplied and i suppose you could you could say that's there's an industrial aspect to that in the production of multiples as many as many multiples as you can get to create that system yeah great and that's um it's clearly a very broad 
application of design that, that goes through the department you work in, which which means, of course, you've got to have varied skills. So I will just say to anyone listening to this that's interested, please go onto the Foster and Partners website, have a look at some of the incredible buildings there, and also look at there's an industrial design section on there where you can look at all the types of products that go through the department Stefan works in. Moving on then to how you work, I've seen you do a lot of drawings in the past and a lot of sketching. What what are your favourite tools? Because I guess you're not just sketching all the time. What what are your favourite tools for your work? I do think it starts with my, my absolute favourite thing is a pen, pencil, paper, because I think that's how I find it easiest to communicate. And as well, I think sketching is something that I think when I was much younger, you're very precious about sketching. But sketching isn't drawing. Drawing is a very different thing because drawing is is trying to present something as real or a a replication of something. So paper, pens, etc., being able to sketch and use sketching to have a conversation with somebody else who then also sketches in response to your sketch. But also it's about emptying your head of you thinking about something And I think I've learned over the years, my head, and I think everyone's head has got a capacity. If you think of it, something, the best thing to do is get it onto paper and then it leaves room for other thought processes and other sketches. And so I do think that that is still my most valued tool. But then after the sketching, there's obviously the CAD packages and rendering packages, which are all, we could do what we do without them. But what we couldn't ever live without is the ability and and the machinery and the skills that we've got to make the things that we've sketched. And this is in uh, prototypes and kind of, you know, 3D versions of your sketching process. Yes. Yeah. So a physical representation of the idea that's in your head that you've sketched through and using sketching again to solve the problems. Sketching, you can understand what the problem is. We do a lot of text as well, descriptions, so it's getting it all out. And then you just make the thing and pick it up or sit on it. Are you using any new technologies to, you know, kind of augmented reality maybe when you say sometimes you just need to pick something up? Is it, um, you know, you can use technology now to kind of place your 3D model of your computer on a desk and do you find that still not the same? It doesn't, it doesn't work in the same way? We use VR intermittently and we do use some of the AR technology and i think what what is brilliant about the ar is i mean you can get it for free and if you can produce a 3d model in a piece of 3d software it is a really valid way of evaluating something but i haven't experienced a single project in 24 years where the render or vr or ar we haven't changed something once we've seen it at one-to-one, as in a full scale. Yeah, I haven't experienced a single project where the one-to-one hasn't told us the final bits of things that need to change. And I think that's also, a lot of that is to do with, obviously, just the aesthetic and at one-to-one you've got the, the lighting, etc. But also everything we do is, is a humans interact with it. And AR and VR can't tell you how 10 different people are going to interact with something and each of their experiences might be different and highlight again the word problem highlight problems you didn't 
realise we're there, for instance. Great. Right. Thank you for that. Um, I'm just going to sort of move on now, actually, and talk about your career journey, something this podcast is quite focused on, of course. So did you always know you wanted to be a designer or did it come to you? Did you sort of organically find your way there? I don't know if it's a cliche or not, but I think teachers played a big role in it. I'm not from a family background which has got design in it. I mean, my mum was a mobile hairdresser i suppose you could say that was a creative industry and it's making something i suppose but i think teachers teachers definitely saw something teachers at school or teachers at kind of which level yeah gcse level and then i did a one-year art and design foundation course after a levels i think it was essentially when i look back and i think doing this has made me evaluate that path and i think I was always very, very interested in how things look, why they look the way they look, and then on the flip side to that, how how they work as well. So I remember Nike Air Max 1 trainers that I'd see adverts for them, and then I'd obsessively just draw and redraw and draw again, and teachers would pick up on that and sharks was another thing i used to draw a lot for whatever reason not not like the teeth or anything like just the shape of a shark and then a teacher would say okay in the library there's this book on this or and a teacher once said to me if you like sharks you'll like porsche 911s for instance so there i go to the library and there's books on porsche 911 and yeah he was right and i only realize now that there is there's an aesthetic link there which is form and function and so yeah i think teachers or adults in general that could see that it wasn't necessarily a a skill but it's just an it's an interest in something and then they would encourage that and say for instance we had i remember at school we had um like we all did CDT or design tech. I don't know if it's called that now or what the name of it is. But then the school had a very early version of CAD software, 2D CAD software. We'd never use it in lessons and it was basically the teacher's desk had it. But then that particular teacher said to me and one other person, if you come at lunchtime, I'll show you something really interesting on the computer. And then I think my mind just responded instantly to, okay, I can draw something there and then that can get printed out and it can get made. And I think I've I've always had that interest in physical things. Yeah. Sounds like you really had really great support through school, actually. And um, Yeah, I, I, I feel very lucky. So what was the bridge then between school and kind of getting your first break in the industry you you mentioned you went and studied art foundation and then on to university i guess i think something that's maybe important to talk about at this point is that through from the age of 15 i've always had to work to be able to follow this path if that makes sense so i don't want to i don't want to come across and say okay i did two years of a levels then a year of art and design foundation and then three years of university that sounds in my own head now like that's a big commitment but it didn't feel in any way like that at the time because it was just things I wanted to do. And I think I was pretty sure I didn't want to follow my mates into getting hot hatches and 
just making money to buy cars and things like that. That didn't excite me, I suppose. So the Art and Design Foundation course was really, really important, I think, because essentially you're forced to do everything. Painting, photography, life drawing, design technology, graphic design, illustration, an element of fashion design. Would you say that's where you that's where you kind of really honed your passion to go into design or something three-dimensional yes, were you did you go into the foundation course more open-minded of i'm creative what do i do with this i went into the foundation course with the mindset of i like drawing and if there's any way that i could get paid to draw as a job that sounds great at the time i was working on a, a delicatessen in a supermarket that no longer exists and i think that that also gave me this like this isn't what i want to do i'm interested in other things and it gives you that push to do something different but again on that course i think i think in my mind it was graphic design that i was going to go down the route of graphic design and illustration do you think that's because at the time maybe graphic design as a job was maybe one that you had more exposure to the fact that that was a real job um i think it was more to do with the fact that i could draw a chair or sketch a chair but i i had no means of making that thing whereas with graphic design i could draw a poster as well i think maybe rave doesn't mean the same as it did when i was 17 but we used to go to record shops and collect all the flyers for different raves and tapes that were happening all over the country and just the impact of those very sort of small pieces of paper that basically just anyone was putting them together and if you can get a printer you can do graphics and do interesting things and print it out but then again it was a teacher on that course that said if i can get you to the other part of the college that's got like clay and metal workshops and things spend a week there and just again the guidance was spot on because i think he could sense that and i got much more satisfaction from having a a physical object at the end of the process than I ever did having a a flat something on a screen. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting to hear actually because it's very similar to my experience with Art Foundation. And perhaps if someone is creative and doesn't quite know how to turn that into a job just yet, it might be a really good thing to consider a foundation course because I think it helps you hone an area to go into to kind of further your education if that's what you want to do. And be willing to work hard as well. I think there's a slight misconception with the creative industries that it's maybe like a an easy path or it's not bricklaying or it's not heating engineer or etc. But like I think with anything you get out what you put in. So be willing to work hard and be challenged and push yourself to try different things. And and if if a foundation course isn't a route that's available to you maybe push yourself to try okay i'm going to try and draw this today in a in a sketchbook tomorrow i'm going to try and paint something the day after i'll do some photography and at the end of the week i'll try and make something and i think some people are, are also very lucky in that all of those things really speak to them and they do some of everything and i mean like thomas have the week for instance he's a sort of a modern renaissance man who seemingly turns his hand to everything i still 
actually do quite a lot of graphic design at work because we put together our own presentations, technical drawings. I take a lot of pleasure still in producing technical drawings to send to the manufacturers. So yeah, I think the foundation course gave me this real sense of there's all these different paths and all of them are relevant and you can use the skills from each of them. And then I think at university, I was was very lucky that all of our tutors were practicing designers at the time. And I think they gave us a real grounding in what the reality of having a job is more than anything. The job might be being a designer, but it is still a job and there's expectations and there's just aims and et cetera. And yeah, I feel feel that set me up really well like I said earlier, the work that needs to be put in, it is definitely a job, but it's a job that I take great pleasure and pride in. So I feel feel very lucky for that. Yeah. Hard work feels easy when you enjoy what you do, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just going back to how did you get your first job in design? What did that look like? You know, what, what happened after university and what was important there, do you think? What advice would you give there? I left, graduated from university, obviously, and then and then came back home to the Midlands. And then, again, something that I don't think exists anymore, the yellow pages. Yeah. The internet was nothing like it is now, then. So it was a case of looking through the yellow pages and understanding, okay, I've studied furniture design, but I'm not seeing anything in this yellow pages which says furniture design companies and we had Design Week magazine. Does that still exist? I don't know. You know that. So I used to get the train into Birmingham every, I think it came out on Fridays. I used to go in every Friday, sometimes by Design Week, or sometimes you're standing WH Smith and read it cover to cover. And they had job advertisements, but also just lists of design companies in the back of Design Week. And then it was an old fashioned write letters or write the same letter and send it to lots and lots of companies essentially um offering to do what was needed to get a foot in the door did you do work experience then or did you no i managed i mean replies were limited but i think i kept myself occupied and i kept interested in the industry and and i think libraries are a very underutilized thing like it's all there to keep to keep your mind occupied. And then I, I got a call from a couple of interior designers in Birmingham and they essentially asked me to go in but made it clear it wasn't a job interview, but they just said, we really liked what you'd written. We like what you've been doing. Just want to tell you what we do as a company and like keep going. And then one of those type of conversations was with an architectural practice called Glen Howells Architects, doing very nice contemporary modern architecture, very small practice. And um, essentially, the, the head of the practice, Glen Howells, he really liked the conversation we had, and he made it clear there wasn't a job for a furniture designer, but with the skill sets I had with regards to model making, etc., he gave me a job as an architectural model maker, which was great. And again, highly appreciated. It didn't get me my uh, hot hatch though, because it wasn't paid brilliantly. But again, every week at Glen Howells Architects, there were furniture companies coming in trying to sell furniture on projects. And I, and I think I realize now that 
Glenn understood that would be happening and he would always tell the staff whenever there's a meeting with a furniture company, just grab Stefan so he can sit in. Uh, and then after about a year, uh, there was a small furniture company in the Midlands that were starting a, a, a sort of more, they were education furniture manufacturers and they were looking to start a more contract-based division selling into commercial projects and things. And Glenn very kindly put me forward for a job there and that was really the start of you getting into working as a designer right yeah and working somewhere that had a factory downstairs I, I was sat upstairs in an office and everything was made downstairs underneath and Fantastic. I think I spent 80 percent of any given day on the shop floor and 20 percent in the office doing drawings because learning about tolerances and, and production techniques and just learning about the people who put this stuff together as well. And like, if their life's hard, they're not going to put things together well. So it gave me a really good sort of all-round view of what design is, again, the, the problem of an element of it. So there's a couple of really important messages there, I think. I think number one, and, and, and I'm sure it's as relevant today as it was then, even if your route to finding companies is different, you've still got to be tenacious in, in going out there and finding a place for you to yeah. to fit in or start and, and also be willing to try something different. Yeah, go outside your comfort zone. Yeah. I mean, like, I do look back now and I, and I do think the naivety of youth is a very positive thing, actually, um, because when somebody said to me, do you want to be an architectural model maker? I think an older me would have said, I don't know how to do that. But <laughs> the 20-year-old me just said, yeah, sure. <laughs> Go and do it, yeah. And I think that's to do with that interest in the way things work and why things are how they are. If you've got that genuine interest, the first thing I go away and do is is like try and understand how architectural models are made and why they are how they are and... Yeah, I found that really interesting and it's got that same sort of precision and problem solving. You you design the way you're going to build the model. So yeah, so slightly odd saying go outside your comfort zone because I think if you are creatively minded, there probably isn't any such thing as outside of the comfort zone. Yeah, everything, yeah. everything can have that thought process applied to it. That's great. Thank you for that. Stefan, that brings us to a close, actually. And uh, I think we've had a great conversation there and there's some really interesting points for people to pick up on, particularly on education. So really appreciate your time. Is there anything else you want to add before we... Uh, no, just uh, like, thanks for being interested. I think I'm generally quite a modest person. I don't like talking about myself necessarily, but I do really like talking about the work that I and other people do because we need new people coming through who are as inspired as I was once to challenge the status quo. And I think, as I said before, about the addition of stuff to the world, we need people who are adding really relevant, interesting, and not to sound gushing, but life-changing things. That's what we need. Absolutely. Totally agree. Well, thank you again and cheers. Brilliant. Thanks very much. Thank you.